Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In the world of higher education research, success is often defined as a function of two statistics, enrollment and completion. And if you go by those two checkpoints, students experience very different chances of success based on their backgrounds and family characteristics. Consider, for example, that students who come from the families in the top 20% of earners enroll in college at a rate 50 percentage points higher than students from the bottom 20%. That's 78% as opposed to 28%. And those from low-income families that do enroll, they're also significantly less likely to finish than their higher-income peers. This is a serious challenge. So how might we close persistent enrollment and attainment gaps among less advantaged populations? Well, a new venture called Degrees of Freedom has an ambitious plan to do just that. And without giving too much away, I'll tell you that one of the first steps involves buying a college. On this episode, I talked with Degrees of Freedom founding president, Seth Andrew. Seth is the founder of the Democracy Prep Charter Schools, whose portfolio now includes 21 schools across five states. Previously, he served as a senior advisor and superintendent of residence at the U.S. Department of Education, and he was a senior advisor in the Office of Education Technology at the White House under President Obama. Seth, welcome to the report card. Nat, it's always good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Seth, you bought a college as uh, sort of one of the initial steps in this effort, and I may not have to point out to you that there's a lot of private colleges right now that are really worried about just opening their doors, given we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, So maybe I'll just ask right off the top, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, that's the the perfect start because we are guided by Rahm Emanuel's wisdom here, which is never let a good crisis go to waste. This is an idea that we have been thinking about for probably 10 years since Democracy Prep was still in its infancy, and we were thinking about the options that our students had after leaving us. And this crisis has provided an opportunity to sort of move much faster at the reimagination of higher education. Higher education in America has become deeply broken, ossified, and part of the reason for the financial challenges is because it has not innovated in fundamental ways, and that's really what Degrees of Freedom is all about. So what we're doing is taking a moment in time that has been The need has been there for a very long time. We're talking about 20 million Americans with debt and no degree, for example. And we're trying to use this moment to build the the new thing using an an environment that is really favorable to our kind of low residency, technology-infused, high-quality education. Okay, so I heard some descriptors in there. But before we get ahead of ourselves on the technology-infused, part-time residency, Can you lay out the basics of the model of Degrees of Freedom? So Degrees of Freedom will be an accredited college. There's some steps before we get there. We are initially partnering with the Marlboro College trustees, but also the accreditors to figure out the best path here for uh, accreditation as an affiliate campus of another institution. And the the basic model is three legs of a stool. We believe that higher ed has, has not done a strong enough job of any of those three. The first is an on-campus liberal arts experience that is well-rounded, has a common core curriculum, much more like Columbia than Brown, my alma mater, where every student is going to get essential skills and knowledge to make sure that they don't come into college with any gaps. Because our students are coming primarily from low-income or first-generation backgrounds, 
their high schools all over the country. They need to be, have certain things filled in that we feel like are essential building blocks academically and intellectually to be successful in college. So the first thing is a on-campus component of sitting around a table discussing essential works of literature and text, doing uh, rigorous data sets, being in a laboratory, meeting your friends and your professors in a physical environment. And once that foundation is laid, we believe that we can then move to our second leg of the stool, which is a really rigorous online learning environment. Thus far, online learning has often been low quality and low rigor, and there are exceptions to that, of course. But on the, on the whole, it really hasn't met my bar for academic expectations for our students. And so what we're going to try to do is reimagine some of the online learning components. So it is not just Zoom calls, but there's actually things like natural language processing and artificial intelligence that is underpinning a fair amount of the uh, analysis of our students' writing and engagement. We're going to be using new engagement tools and modalities like virtual reality and ways that you can actually have hands-on learning, even though not physically present. So the online experience is going to be new and different, which will lead us to the third part of the puzzle, the third leg of the stool, which is a career focus that leads to a middle-class life that is both fulfilling and sustaining. And what we found with the Democracy Prep alumni who have often gone to uh, traditional community colleges or online colleges or small private liberal arts colleges that are struggling right now is they don't end up in a middle-class career that is fulfilling and sustaining coming out with that degree. So at Democracy Prep, 85% of the students are persisting in four-year programs, which is an incredible number that I'm wildly proud of. However, that means that 15% are not. And I believe about 15 to 20% are persisting, but probably shouldn't because the quality of degree they're going to get is not equal to the amount of debt they're taking. So we have to get that balance right. And if we have those three legs of the stool, I think we will. So you've got a lot of components here that are often not put together, right? So we talk about online learning. And there's often, uh, you know, a program for online college education, but it's not as well matched or merged to this traditional on-campus experience. You're trying to guarantee both. I'm guessing this is why you bought a college? This is. If you don't have, and, and I think everybody now has experienced this. We were thinking about it a long time ago. If it's online only, which is able to help you bring your costs down because you don't have grass to mow and dorms to maintain, um, then you often lose the interpersonal relationship. I mean, part of the reason, Nat, that you and I can have this conversation is because I know you. We've sat in the same room for years. We've talked about things. We've you know, shared beverages and those kind of, maybe not the actual same beverage, but you get the idea. That relationship that we built over not even that many combined hours when you put them all together. In fact, this is a good example. I've probably spent fewer hours in person with you than our students will spend together in Vermont. But because we have that relationship, we can now work in an online environment in a much more efficient and effective way than had we not had that. So the physical campus to me is essential. It's not a nice to have, it's a need to have to build relationships in the, the real world that then carry through and magnify the impact of the online learning that happens after students leave. And simultaneously, it has to be consistent. It can't be we met once at a conference six years ago and now I expect to have a good Zoom call. What needs to happen is every trimester, so every three, four months, students come together in Vermont for this booster shot of high intensity, high dosage, liberal arts, rigorous academic work, and then they move to their online environment for another three months after that. It sounds like the residency is a roll on, roll off. I mean, do you have kids coming for part of the semester and then you have another 
you know, third of the trimester with another set of students? Correct. So this is what we call a low residency model. Um, we have a trimester system, which really means it's year round. And what a student does is at the beginning of each trimester comes to campus for two weeks. That is the time where they have the social interactions, the personal and meaningful interactions we're talking about. And then they go back to their home community. And what that means for the physical campus is that I can actually have 300 dorm beds, but 1,500 students per year. So part of the, what is broken in higher education today, the reason we see sticker prices, which are unfathomable to most Americans, $60,000, $70,000 a year, including room and board, is more than most families make in America in a year, let alone spend on one, two, or three children in college. So that sticker price has to be thrown out the door, and we need to totally reimagine the cost structure of college. And one way we do that is by using a physical asset that we have to mow the grass and get the dorms ready, but we don't have to do that for 300 kids for 300 beds. We can do it for 1,000 or, or 1,500 students because they're on cycles rotating in through the campus. And that brings the cost of operations down dramatically for the ability to bring the cost of students down dramatically as well. You said earlier, but I don't know how clearly and explicitly it was, that you're looking to serve first-generation college students, largely a low-income population. But precisely, who are you looking to bring on as students? So the answer is everyone. This is a, a, an open college where we really do welcome anyone from any background, and this will be a diverse and inclusive place. However, one of the reasons we've structured both our financial model and our academic model for uh, low-income first-gen students in particular is they're the ones least well-served by the existing system. So traditional community colleges, low-quality online programs, and high-cost small liberal arts colleges are not serving this group particularly well, which we've seen in our own alumni at Democracy Prep, but also it's true across the, the, the country uh, consistently. So we're looking for anyone who wants an affordable degree. And why do we say low income? Because Pell-eligible students will be able to get their degree with no debt and no out-of-pocket costs. So if you are eligible for Pell, we believe that the price point is such that you can come in, be Pell eligible, and not have to take out any debt for your associate's degree to start. And eventually, when we have the full accreditation, your, your bachelor's degree as well. And that is a, a game-changing financial paradigm for low-income families. Now, it, for a high-income family, they may see a price point of $9,000 a year and say, that sounds great if it's really good quality. So I think we will attract a socioeconomically diverse student body over time, but we're going to have to prove that quality out to a lot of folks in, the, in higher income brackets over time for them to see the value, the, the return on investment that they're going to get for their dollars. Let me just ask you, Seth, because I don't know anyone who has bought a college campus before. So uh, you've done it. I'm sure you're you know, you have an affinity for this place. Can you just give us a short description of where the home base is going to be? Yeah, that's really, I'm, I'm glad you asked because I do have a passion for this place. This is Marlboro College's campus in Marlboro, Vermont. It's about 10 minutes from Brattleboro, Vermont. And it's 500 acres of really beautiful Vermont woods, 50 academic buildings uh, from brand new dorms and science labs to a, a gorgeous library with 100,000 volumes. And the, the history of this college is 75 years of really rigorous liberal arts education with a democratic tradition. So part of what attracted me to Marlboro is that they've used this sort of New England town hall meeting democratic tradition for, for the past 75 years. And although we're going to tweak that and modernize it in a lot of ways, we really admire the democratic traditions that they built. It's a college that was founded in part by Robert Frost, the American poet. So there's this history that we're hoping to carry through and build 
a sense of place that builds on those histories and traditions. And as we like to say, stand on the shoulder of giants. We don't need to create everything because Marlboro has a lot of things in place, in not only in the physical infrastructure and assets, but in the alumni and sort of history of being in this amazing, somewhat quarantined campus for 75 years. They unintentionally have mediocre cell phone service and really off the grid rural environment that functions for students as an intensive learning and community building place. And we're looking to modernize it in some ways, but also maintain a lot of those traditions that we're excited about. Seth, I want to go back to sort of the genesis of this idea. You said it's been 10 years in the making, but I'm interested sort of in the origin story a little bit more, but also very precisely, and I, I want to push on this, what is the specific problem that you are trying to solve, right? So we can talk about like, well, we want enrollment to go up and we want completion to go up. And I understand those things, but those are weak reflections of the actual problem you need to solve. So as far as what, uh, what degrees of freedom will deliver to students that they have not been getting, what's your conception of that? And when did it become clear to you that that was the problem that you needed to attack? So Democracy Prep's first high school I was deeply in, involved in, we saw students sort of falling into three buckets. The, the highest performing students by things like SAT or GPA were pretty much set on an Ivy League selective college path with no debt. And those are places and institutions that graduate 95, 99% of their students. They are pretty much set for both completion and because our students were predominantly low income, they were almost all need blind or met full need. So they were not the students that I was mostly focused on. The second tier of students from a place like Democracy Prep, and this is true of the public charter school sector across the country, were going to places like SUNY Albany and SUNY Binghamton, solid state institutions with uh, strong programs and relatively low cost, low debt with programs like Excelsior in New York. Students basically went debt free and they were getting a high quality degree and setting them up for middle class life. But this third tier of students either attending low quality community colleges or small liberal arts colleges were ending up with a twofold problem. They were ending up with debt, sometimes $20,000, $50,000 in debt, and a degree that did not give them an ROI professionally for the next chapter. So I'll just share with you the, the, the epiphany moment for me, because 10 years ago, we were thinking about how to serve these kids but didn't have a plan. And in January of 2020, I was on a subway stop at 125th Street in New York, and a former student comes up and taps me on the shoulder, and I recognize him and say, oh my goodness, it's been forever, seven years, Mama, how are you? And he says, I'm great. And I said, uh, what are you up to? And this is a student who was in AP Calculus, STEM superstar, good at GPA, good SAT, and fluent in Korean, advanced regents diploma. And when he left Democracy Prep at 12th grade, he has offered a full ride to Albright College in Pennsylvania, small liberal arts college. And we believed at that moment that he was set. We didn't have to worry about his future because he had a path and we had helped him set him up for that path. And now the ball was in his, his court. So I say, what are you up to? And he says, well, I'm working for Amazon. And I said, amazing. Where'd you learn to code? We hadn't taught him to code. And he says, oh, no, no, I'm delivering for Amazon. And in this moment of my vision of his future, and where he was, was such a dichotomy, not because there's anything wrong with delivering. It's a great job. He's making $22 an hour. He's happy with it. The problem is that he could have done that job without four years of college and $20,000 in debt. 
that he could have left the high school and done the exact same job and probably been further along in that career if he hadn't. And the, the dichotomy of today's economy is that Amazon has delivery and warehouse and has data center and, and computer science. And we want more of our students who have that capacity, such as Mamadou, to be on the, the data center and computer science track. And so Degrees of Freedom is trying to solve this dual problem of too much debt with too low quality a degree. So Seth, I'm interested in how you plan on managing the transitions in this model you've got. You've got a lot of kids coming and going to college and they're coming for a few weeks, but not for a semester. So it seems like with so many transitions and that's going to be repeated, you may have slippage in how you are going to capture your students, keep them fully engaged, which is obviously essential to the completion track. What are your strategies that you're building into the model to make sure that you keep kids engaged all the way through fairly long online components? Yeah, engagement is essential. And so if we don't have engagement and and passion and satisfaction, we won't succeed. So the, the first answer is this thing I described as sort of booster shots is that the, the you know, 14, 15 weeks of online learning come right after another time with your friends and professors and college, and, and, and college classmates on campus. So it's not like you've lost touch with them in three months. We all have friends who we haven't talked to for three months, but when we pick up the phone, it's like it was yesterday. So that's the first part of the answer, is that this sequence is pretty predictable. They know their calendar year in advance. They work with their workplace apprenticeship or, or internship to schedule that as their vacation time, et cetera. So they, they know in advance what it is. The second part of the puzzle for engagement is that the online learning can't just be Zoom. We all have Zoom fatigue. It has to include things like virtual reality. In fact, we just completed through our Degrees of Freedom pilot, a virtual reality debate tournament. And this was for high school students across the country to have a, a fully engaged high school debate competition as though they would have in a high school auditorium if we didn't have COVID. And we made this opportunity for them to put on a, a quest headset from Oculus and debate one another around the country from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Boston, Massachusetts. And that level of engagement with the physicality that comes with it and the new modality of teaching is one that I think is going to really enhance the engagement to it. I mean, when we ended this tournament on Friday, every student really said, when are we doing this again? How do we keep going? What's the next step here? And they've been doing Zoom debates for months, but the level of engagement on the VR debate was 10x the kind of engagement we're seeing on the Zoom debates. So using new modalities for engagement is a second part of the engagement puzzle. Um, and then the last, and this is actually really the most important, is we are going to have some of the best professors in the world. So this is not a faculty made up of the, the person in town who knows marketing, as it often is at a community college where they're teaching a marketing course. This writing course is going to be taught by an NYU professor. The introduction to college is the Franklin Marshall professor. These are kinds of professors that are the most culturally responsive, thoughtful, inclusive professors I've ever met or worked with, an incredibly diverse staff, coming from elite institutions. But because it is online, they're able to bring that same intellectual rigor and capacity at NYU to the writing course uh, at Degrees of Freedom. And it's the same teacher at $70,000 a year at NYU as Degrees of Freedom, literally the same individual teaching basically the same course. The difference will be whether it's in-person or online. So you, you jumped a little ahead, but I still want to ask more. You got a lot of staff to pick up. You're starting from scratch. How are you building out your faculty? 
and also the staff and the, the counseling and, and and so forth. I assume this will be headquartered at Marlboro, but how's your staffing model work and how hard is it to ramp up from scratch? As I say, we've been thinking about this for a long time and I've been building a dream team roster of the kind of folks who I want to work with for years. So the good news is we're coming into this with about 30 folks who we've already said are the right people for this project. So we're not starting from scratch. The second is we're picking up some of the staff from Marlboro who we feel like know the physical campus and the environment and rural Vermont in January is a unique experience for a kid from Harlem or the Bronx. So we need to make sure that we have people that understand and basically can can translate between those two worlds. Um, And then the third part is we are looking to hire. We're hoping to grow and ramp up really fast, as I say. You know, if, if all goes well, by September 21, we want 1,500 students. So for that, we will need a whole lot more staff. And so if any of your listeners want to be part of this uh, adventure, have them reach out to us at degreesoffreedom.org, and we would love to review their resume and talk to them about the opportunities, which include adjunct. So we'll have an adjunct faculty from around the country. They will get fully expense-paid trips to Vermont for a couple of weeks a year. And think about that more of as, as sort of like a, a perk we are looking for full-time faculty, some who will be in residence in Vermont, some who will come up three times a year with those rotations, uh, but might live in New York or Denver or Louisiana. And then the third are we're looking for some full-time staff uh, of not faculty type who are going to be building out our programs. So they might be in the individual city as our apprenticeship coordinator in New York or Boston or Denver. And so we have uh, uh, job descriptions for all of the above and uh, would love to, to bring more people onto the team as we grow. There's another component that we haven't even talked about, and that is you have sort of a hybrid sort of early college type component to this where students in 11th and 12th grade can participate in degrees of freedom programs. What's the vision behind that? And how are you building out that component? Well, it's important that you ask that, Nat, because one of the things degrees of freedom is trying to do is to blur the line between college and high school. We've drawn an absolutely artificial, unnecessary line between 12th and 13th grade in America, and it's doing our students harm consistently. We are often throwing students into the deep end of the pool without the kind of structures and supports they need to do a gradual release into the college and adult workforce, and that's really part of the reason we see such low completion and such low engagement. So by starting in 11th and 12th grade with coursework that is the same degrees of freedom coursework, credit-bearing college courses that can be done online from anywhere, uh, we will be giving students the ability and the the experience to test that. We'll also be offering those students the ability to spend some time on campus, though not two weeks, so they can have a little bit more of an orientation session on physical campuses and get to know some of their classmates. And we're also then able to partner with high schools and really invest them in the process. So public charter high schools in particular, we're looking to form partnerships with where students start in 11th grade, and we have a lot of students participate in 11th or 12th grade in specific classes, but then when they get to 13th grade, some of them stay on with degrees of freedom and some of them go on to other colleges, but they go to those other colleges with credits in hand that are like AP credits because they're transferring from our Marlboro College, now uh, degrees of freedom and freedom college transcript. They walk into their new campus with a head start rather than feeling like they're starting off behind. And so that blurring of the line is what's really important to thinking this entire model through because it should not be that you leave high school and never talk to your high school student again. And and the student on the train, Mamadou, is an example of that. I, I didn't talk to him for seven years and I feel a fair amount of guilt about that because I didn't know 
that there were probably pivot points in his trajectory when he went from his small liberal arts college to getting gapped and having a $20,000 debt load in his second year to then transferring to community college, to transferring to a second and a third community college. He didn't have the support and the transfer support to make sure he made the, the best, most optimal decisions for what he wanted to achieve. And that's the kind of support that Degrees of Freedom can offer that a traditional school just doesn't think about. So Seth, when you're going to reach out, I ask, you know, where are you going to get your faculty? That's, that's pretty important. But secondary, where are you going to get your students? How do you market a new college and how do you uh, attract new students to uh, come, especially with a model that, you know, hasn't been proven yet? Yep. Well, it's, it's it, the only thing I'd say about that hasn't been proven is that we have spent three years now or three months now in an online learning environment in America. So what this, this painful pandemic has caused is an awareness of how online learning works, both its strengths and its weaknesses. And it's also given this incredible sense of yearning for two things that Degrees of Freedom offers that I think any parent or any student can tell you today. One is they benefit from physical interaction. It doesn't need to be all the time, but they benefit from a physical, meaningful, in-person relationship. And they benefit from higher quality online learning than they often get. And my own children now are basically kindergarten dropouts because the quality of kindergarten online they were getting was so low quality, they weren't willing to do it. I think parents and students have felt that across from kindergarten to college that it's just not worth it. So we have to give a better product and that's why all these other pieces of engagement are so important. But the the second part of how we market is by working specifically with high schools. So high schools need to know that their job doesn't stop at 12th grade. They need to have skin in the game and support for their students once they leave. I think that the real metric of a high school success is not high school graduation rate or even college admissions rates. Those are false positives. The real question is college success and middle-class life success, and for me, civic success. So Degrees of Freedom also will have essential required courses in citizenship and American democracy as part of our core curriculum because we need our students to be able to, to improve in and enhance our democracy as they get older. And then the third point of marketing is sort of building a new college is we need to be different. We're not looking for people that want to do the same thing that's always been done. We want innovators and pioneers. And by having a lower price point with a a unique model, we think we're going to get a lot of those sort of folks that have have taken on innovative models in the past. And we've seen schools do this recently in the last five years. It has been done and done well. We need to take some of those plays and and play them well. Does that, real quick, when are you anticipating having your first students start? We are going to be open for students in September 2020, meaning two and a half months from now. And we are going to do that on campus with the best safety precautions of the best, most established elite colleges. We'll have single dorm rooms, we will have social distancing, we will have medical testing and temperature checks, all of the things that one needs to be able to run a physical campus in September. Um, And we will be running that physical uh, campus because we think it's important to get kids back together and students in in a learning environment that is not their bedroom or their kitchen table. And a lot of our students have been struggling. I've been struggling as a parent with kids in the house distracting you at every minute. And so we think that that having our first class in September will be a pressure release valve for a lot of kids and families. And we're really looking forward to welcoming them to campus. Seth, I've talked to a bunch of folks who have established campuses and have been you know, running schools with a given program for a long time. And they're not sure how they're going to run things in the fall we are in the middle of a pandemic. I'm sure there must have been folks from inside and outside, degrees of freedom that said, let's pump the brakes. 
And, and, you know, obviously, this is a huge disruption, a huge challenge. It would probably be easier to do what you're doing were there not a pandemic. I, 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 I hope that's not too adventurous of a, of a statement. So given that, here you are and you're saying, no, we're going uh, to get to work in 10 weeks. Why not wait? What's the logic behind pushing so hard to do this now when there's a lot of reasons that other people would take to put it off here? Uh, so I love this question. I'm going to weave in something that is slightly off topic, but, but the, the way that you phrase the question is exactly the kind of thinking we've been doing as a team. So our design team includes alumni from Democracy Prep and the student I'm talking about on the subway, and they are telling me in no uncertain terms that this is urgent. This is not something that we should just sort of kick down the road. And so to weave in the moment, in a, in a time where we need to acknowledge and say that Black Lives Matter, where we need to recognize that this country and our democracy are in jeopardy in the, some of the most fundamental principles that we hold dear, and in this moment where people like me who have incredible amounts of privilege need to be stronger allies to the Black and Brown community, I take Dr. King's words to heart, and he wrote the book called Why We Can't Wait. And I recently reread Why We Can't Wait, and the moment of 1968 and the moment of today have such incredible echoes because we absolutely cannot wait to start changing these paradigms and systems that so long have excluded low-income students because of price point, have excluded first-generation income, uh, first-generation college students because of, you know, understanding how the system works, uh, understanding what a bursar is, understanding what a registrar is. If you're a first-generation college student who's coming out of a New York City public high school, those words are foreign texts. So we have to act now because there are literally hundreds of thousands of students graduated this month who do not have a path that is gonna set them up for success. And that's why we at the, the Degrees of Freedom team see this as, as a, a really essential mission to prove this is possible. If there's a second wave in the virus, if there are health concerns that put our students faculty at, at risk in some way, of course we will pump the brakes. However, if Dartmouth can open, we can open. And we're gonna make sure that that's possible for our students. We have a cloistered community where students will be on campus, basically quarantined for two weeks with great medical health professionals, mental health professionals, and rigorous academics. So I think we're better positioned than a typical college to operate in Marlboro than we could if we were operating at the Borough Manhattan Community College. So a lot of what I hear you saying is you can't wait. You're working on a problem that is its own emergency, and we we can't set aside one emergency just because we have another. So uh, let me let me interrupt now to say that's exactly right. We can't set aside one emergency because we have another emergency because those emergencies are actually linked together. The history of systemic racism and oppression in America is often exacerbated by, perpetuated by existing systems of higher ed that lock out the very students who need that access and that opportunity the most. So what I think the high-performing charter school sector has done over the past 20 years in K-12 is what we're really trying to kick off here in higher ed, which is opening new doors to students who deserve world-class education, but have for lots of reasons been denied that opportunity and that access for too long. So Seth, you're trying to open this door and I know you're working hard over the next 12 weeks. What are the remaining hurdles that you have got to clear in terms of you know, accreditation and, and getting things up and running. What are the what are the next things that you really have to conquer? 
So we are working on a three-track plan on accreditation. We are confident that we will have something in place for September with a, a number of different accreditation partners, but that is the biggest rock we have to move is to make sure we are an accredited college starting in September with affiliations with other institutions and articulation agreements with other institutions. And that's our biggest rock. The second is student recruitment. As I say, our capacity is 1,500 students on this campus. So we want to increase the number of students and, and high school partners. So if any of your listeners are affiliated with high schools, especially charter high schools, but really any high school that wants to partner with us for 11 through 14 program, we'd love to hear from them and engage with them immediately because students and families need to know about this option, some of whom are choosing something out of necessity or desperation right now. And we think we have a better offering for them in September and we'll, we'll work with them to, to further other option and come degrees of freedom to give it a try. And then the third is that we are in a moment where we have to raise money and that is a, a hard challenge in a pandemic with all sorts of other philanthropic priorities. But the reason this moment is so important to leverage philanthropically is that once we reach 300 to 500 students, this, or, this model financially breaks even because of some of the pieces I told you before. So we have to get to that startup capital that lets us break even at 500 students, where we can then begin to open other campuses around the country. And Nat, the vision here is not one great campus in Marlboro, Vermont, although it includes that. It is really a network of 10 or more campuses around the country using the physical asset of small liberal arts colleges that are struggling to turn them into this new model. And so we're hoping to, to, to capture a number of different colleges around the country that are right now, because of the pressures of the, the, the moment, undervalued for their asset. And we want to turn that undervalue into a benefit for low-income and first-gen students. So philanthropy is going to go a long way towards helping us acquire campuses in other cities so that we can really ramp this and uh, speed it up faster than we might if it was just one campus. Seth Andrew, there's one thing I know about you. You're not afraid to tilt at windmills. And this is a big project. Thanks for coming on the report card to tell us about it. And uh, we'll check back with you in a year or two and see how things are up and running at Degrees of Freedom. Well, this is a, this is a windmill worth tilting. Uh, and I'd say to, to you, Nat, and to AEI and all the, all the listeners of the report card, um, don't check back in a couple of years. Check back in a couple months. This is moving fast, and we need to show the world that this is possible. It is, we, we don't see this as sort of a grow slow, one you know, year at a time kind of operation. We see this as a crisis. We see this as a house on fire. And the higher education system needs new models, and we're really excited to, to try it. There will be bumps. We are not perfect. We've made mistakes in the past, and we'll make them again. But we hope to make new mistakes and not the same ones. So we are looking forward to working with you and Rick and the whole team at AEI to, to support this mission and to ask hard questions as we go. So please, please keep asking the hard questions and we'll keep doing our best to figure them out. All right. Best of luck, Seth. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guest, Seth Andrew. I also want to thank our producers that make this podcast possible, Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, take a moment, give us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at That's all for now. I'm Nat Malkus.